Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. Now, I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist. I am a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a small business owner. I'm a Catholic. I'm a lot of things. But right now, I'm your host on All Things Women's Health. On this show, we discuss, you know, all things women's health. And we'll always do it from an authentically Christian Catholic perspective that's evidence-based, that's transparent, and that's as honest uh, as I know how to be. Whether it's childbirth or infertility or pregnancy loss or menopause, homeschooling or personal trainers, if it involves women and their health, it's on the agenda for us. So joining me today is our good friend and colleague of mine, Courtney Reinhold. Now, I've known Courtney since shortly after opening the Fertility and Midwifery Care Center back in 2014. She is a remarkable food and nutrition expert. She's a mother of two. She's a wife. She's an athlete. She is a powerful woman in so many different ways. And I know you're going to enjoy hearing from her. Let's face it. Food is complicated stuff. What's healthy? What's not? What is organic? What does that even mean? Is there such a thing as good fat? You know, should I eat a low-fat diet or a low-carb diet or um, or a vegan diet uh, or uh, the, the keto diet? And if I should, why should I? These are just a few of the questions that we're going to try to tackle in this episode. So get comfortable as we get to know a lot more about Courtney Reinhold and about nutrition. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Well, welcome back to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud, and my guest is Courtney Reinhold, owner of Reinhold Nutrition Services. Courtney, welcome to All Things Women's Health. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good that you would share a little bit of your time with me and uh, and with our listeners. So I usually like to start these discussions with a little bit of medical vocabulary. And you and I know well that in medicine, we can make the simplest thing sound complicated, and we seem to like doing it. But let's do a little bit of vocabulary. And that is, you know, what is a nutritionist? What is a dietitian? Are they the same thing? Are they not? Unpack that for us a little bit. Well, it is a little complicated. I feel like people recognize the term nutritionist a little bit more. Um, I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. They actually, when I became a dietitian, it was just registered dietitian. And within the right. past few years, I think they allowed us to add nutritionist just to relate to people more. But yeah. kind of, I guess you could say everyone anyone can kind of call themselves a nutritionist because it's not as like legally controlled as registered dietitian is. So like a registered dietitian is someone that has to get a four-year degree in dietetics. Some people yeah. double major and then we get like a supervised practice program and have to pass an exam to become a registered dietitian. So, so go through that again uh, in terms of the school. So mm -hmm. it would be a four-year degree and and dietetics specifically? Yeah. So there's accredited program. So I went to Purdue yeah. for dietetics and then I double majored yeah. with nutrition, fitness and health. And then after getting my bachelor's degree, then you apply for different internships hmm. um, that are typically about a thousand um, hours long of supervised wow. practice. So. Now, is it called dietetics? Is that a universal term or is it changed from college to college? Yeah, it's called dietetics, at least here in the U.S. I don't know if it's different in other countries, but sure. registered dietitian is definitely the most recognized term across the country in all states. And then different states have different uh, licensing laws as well. So, Oh, right. And so, you know, you and I know that we love our initials in medicine. So what are the credentials, if there are certain credentials that listeners should look for after, you know, a food nutrition professional's name? Well, definitely for, for medical nutrition therapy. So if, if someone actually has a diagnosis, they definitely want to work with 
a registered dietitian because we are the ones that have gone through the special training, you know, to know how to treat certain diseases through diet. Whereas, you know, a nutritionist might be might be fine. I mean, I'm not saying they're any any more or less educated, but it would, you know, a nutritionist would be more likely to work with someone for just general health purposes. So definitely looking for RD or RDN. Right. I know that I've seen RDN, I think pretty commonly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that someone would commonly see. Now, if you uh, were in the hospital, maybe with diabetes or something, and someone were to come by like you to see them, would they be an RDN? Yeah, they would be an RD or an RDN. I believe hospitals also employ registered diet techs, but I think they do more just related to what you're selecting on your menu while you're there. So I see. Okay. Well, that's helpful. So, you know, tell us your sort of story. <laughs> what, yeah. you, you mentioned that you went to Purdue. I'm sure that'll make all our Purdue fans happy, but, yeah. you know, tell us sort of your professional journey that led you to, you know, where you are today. Yeah. I mean, thinking about that, it definitely goes way back. Like I, I, I think of myself as like I started out as like a foodie and a forager <laughs> before I became a dietitian. Like I've always loved food and cooking. I grew up like my mom cooked all of our meals from scratch and we gardened. And I like one of my favorite books as a child was like this. Uh, it was like a handbook for finding edible foods out in nature and like what you could do, like an herbalist would use, you know, like what you can do with these plants. So I feel like it goes way back then. And I've always just loved how like nature can help us feel good. So, um, and I've always been interested in nutrition and health in general. I kind of bounced around from wanting to be a chiropractor, to a pharmacist, to a radiologist, to a vet. (laughs) And then I just thought, you know, I love food and I love health. And I didn't want to do like a lot of (laughs) a lot of college. (laughs) So it was like a good balance between everything, I guess. Interesting. So uh, you went to Purdue and then what what happened to you after that? Yeah, I actually started out working in dialysis, um, so with chronic kidney disease patients, because that was a specialty area in my internship that I, I don't know, I just felt like a really key piece to the medical team in that aspect. So I enjoyed that, but I I guess I didn't feel as passionate about it because I, you know, it's a lot of patients at the end of their life, and I didn't feel like I was really making a huge impact And I always just loved more health promotion and helping people feel their best and actually dealing with some of my own health issues kind of got me to where I am today. So, Uh, so you, so you did sort of that maybe traditional, you might say hospital nutrition work with dialysis patients. Uh, And then what, what Mm -hmm. was the next step after that? Yeah. So I actually always kind of knew I wanted to start my own business just because I knew I also wanted to be a mom and to have the flexibility of scheduling and not having, you know, a business control when I was going to be there, I guess. Um, So I kind of on the side in the evenings occasionally started meeting patients like at the YMCA or in a chiropractor's office just Mm. for different things. But like I mentioned just a minute ago, like dealing with some of my own health issues, like I end up I've always been a runner. I ended up getting like super anemic and I had migraines actually my whole life since childhood and a lot of GI issues myself. And long story short, I kind of discovered on my own that the things that I was eating, even though I felt like I was eating the foods that that were healthy overall and I exercised, I didn't feel good. And I felt like certain things I ate were making my stomach hurt. And I'm like, well, there's probably connection to my migraines as well. And through my own sleuthing, actually found out about like the MRT test that I use in my business now. And it made such an impact on my life. And then my mom's as well that I'm like, I like I just need to soak up all this information I can about like inflammation and food and how even like healthy foods can make you not feel well. So Mm. then I decided I had to, like, once I had my son, I quit my dialysis job and dove into growing my business. (laughs) So if anybody visits your website, they're going to see these terms, one of which you just mentioned. So MRT, uh, L-E-A-P, LEAP, 
and micronutrient deficient in gastrointestinal microbial testing. That's a mouthful. Yeah. But unpack those terms for us. What is this MRT mm -hmm. thing? Yeah, so MRT stands for mediator release test. And that's the test that I mentioned just a minute ago actually helped me identify like what I was eating that was not agreeing with me. Um, essentially, it was some of the things that I thought were healthy for me, like lettuce was one of the highest inflammatory foods for me. This was back in uh, 2013. I think I did that test. And to this day, I still don't eat lettuce like regularly at all because I don't feel well. So anyhow, MRT, mediator release test, it's, it's m the most accurate type of food sensitivity test because it measures inflammatory mediators. So you're measuring, the lab is measuring 170 different foods and chemicals that are commonly added to foods or in foods. Um, and then they give you the report in basically a bar graph format, quantifying the amount of inflammatory mediators that are released, you know, based on that patient's blood work. So, so, so there'd be, tell me if I'm oversimplifying, but so there'd be something in your bloodstream that says this person is reacting to lettuce. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, and that's something in the bloodstream would be an indicator of inflammation, kind of yeah. general badness, right? Yeah. So like histamines, prostaglandins, those are like a couple examples of the inflammatory cells that are being measured when the lab tests the blood sample. So that's okay. how they that's how they quantify it is they, they're basically lumping all these inflammatory cells that they're measuring in a test tube and mm -hmm. then putting it into bar graph format. So it's, you know, kind of the practical way we use the test report to help people see like these foods are lower inflammatory, these foods are higher inflammatory based on the size of the bar. Yeah. So lettuce may be something that triggers for you, but it may not be for me. Correct. You know, why in general terms would we be different? Why would lettuce bother you and it not bother someone else? Yeah. Well, there's, there's a couple reasons for it. One food sensitivities can be genetic or hereditary, meaning mm -hmm. like something might, like, I feel like that's one for me because I mean, I've reintroduced other foods and they don't bother me, but lettuce always seems to. So it, it could, yeah, I mean, it could go back to something I've just always had a sensitivity to like green beans, like seven people in my family are all inflammatory to green beans. I'm like, that must be something that's like <laughs> genetic in our family. But other things, it, they can be developed, like food sensitivities can be developed in our body because of, you know, intestinal permeability, um, your your body can develop a sensitivity to foods. Sometimes it's because you eat foods often, like I see a lot of people inflammatory to like wheat, corn, soy, milk. And those are, you know, if you think about it, yeah, top yeah. four things that are in most Americans diets. Mm. So, it, so it can be your body's way that it kind of learns a food to be bad essentially. Uh, so. And excellent. Well, let's do the next term, LEAP leap. What is mm -hmm. that? Yeah. So it stands for lifestyle eating and performance, but it's basically like the nutrition protocol that goes along with the MRT test. Uh, um, so it's the MRT test is best done as part of kind of like a guided elimination diet. So leap mm -hmm. is like the, yeah, the eating program recreate for someone using the MRT test as a guide. Right. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then the last one, the really long one, micronutrient deficiency and gastrointestinal microbial testing. Oh yeah. So those are two separate ones. So micronutrient deficiency testing is yeah one separate panel. And then the, yeah, like the microbiome testing is a separate panel. So yeah, I also do micronutrient deficiency testing, blood work. So it's a comprehensive panel of sure. a bunch of different vitamins and minerals to see, you know, where someone's body may be lacking that can, you know, produce different issues in the body if they have that particular deficiency and kind of where, you know, where they can eat more of certain foods or take a mm -hmm. certain supplement to boost those levels up. Um, and then like the microbiome testing is a comprehensive stool analysis. So it's a stool sample assessing like 
so like a lot of different bacteria in the gut. So if there's mm. like an overgrowth of dysbiotic or bad bacteria or not enough of good bacteria, it assesses some different things related to intestinal health and intestinal um, like inflammatory markers and different things like that in the gut. Wow. A lot of information available if, yeah. you know, if you know how to find it, I guess, right? <laughs> so, you know, with those things in mind, what are the most common symptoms or ailments that people are going to end up seeing you for? Yeah, so I definitely see a lot of people for various GI related symptoms, whether they're, you know, have a true diagnosis of, you know, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or mm. celiac disease, or some people just have, you know, like irritable bowel syndrome or just having bloating. So a lot of GI issues, a lot of just general pain in the body, whether it's like muscle tension or joint pain, or I see a lot of migraines, like actually migraines, fibromyalgia, and IBS are the top three conditions that are most studied with that MRT test. Uh -huh. So I see a lot of patients for those things and hormone, thyroid, fertility things as well. Interesting. Now, I happen to know that you're a high-performance athlete, and you mentioned uh, <laughs> that you're a runner. Um, do you see many athletes that are trying to maximize their nutrition? I mean, a handful. Uh, I definitely have worked with a lot of athletes that kind of have the GI issues and mm -hmm. athletic performance hand-in-hand. -hand. So a lot of people, like when they're you know, exercising, then their stomach's hurting. So they want to figure out what they can do to stop that while they're exercising or to, you know, reduce pain after exercise. Like I actually know the MRT test is used with a lot of collegiate and probably professional athletes as well, just to reduce inflammation in the athlete's right. body. So, it's, I mean, it's not an area that I would say I work with a lot, but I've worked sure. with a handful of patients that want to just, yeah, improve their performance and feel as best as possible. Interesting. Well, we kind of referenced it a little bit before, but this idea of, um, you know, so-called gut health, I, I think I'm certainly hearing it a lot more. I think it's said a lot more in popular culture now, but what is gut health? And then what is the talk about inflammation, intestinal inflammation, and kind of total body information? Help us understand what all of that means. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot that goes into gut health. I mean, your gut does a lot of things for you, obviously, but, you know, having good gut health would mean your, your foods are moving through you mm. normally, your stool looks normal, you don't have pain or, you know, some bloating after eating can sometimes be, you know, normal, but, you know, a lot of people have constant bloating every time they eat. Um, sure. So, I mean, essentially your gut health helps you absorb nutrients adequately. You know, having good gut health can help with your energy level. I mean, there's connections to gut health and brain health and hormonal health and thyroid health. So, you know, it, it's all really connected in the body. So if the gut is not healthy. Um, so when I was talking about like the, the microbiome testing I do, you know, a lot of people have too much of that bad bacteria and not enough good bacteria. And that can cause, you know, you to be more prone to having, you know, loose stool or constipation or not absorbing your nutrients. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's all really connected in it. And then if you're eating foods, that your body is inflammatory to mm. that inflames the gut and then it causes malabsorption issues too. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to say like chicken and the egg type thing, but it's, <laughs> all, it's kind of a, a bad cycle if your gut is not healthy because then yeah. you're not absorbing things right and it affects your whole system. So, you know, it's funny anecdotally with me, uh, about a year ago, I started eating a pretty, pretty strict anti-inflammatory diet and uh, I'd heard a lot of people talk about inflammation and body pain and things. And I'll be perfectly honest, I kind of poo-pooed that. You know, I, I struggled to sort of see a connection between what you eat and uh, the pain that I had in my neck from arthritis. But after about a month of eating essentially gluten-free and dairy-free and bad oil-free, actually even faster than a month, my neck wasn't hurting. 
And I knew I wasn't imagining that. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it wasn't hurting. And of course, the only thing I can, I can give credit to for that is that I was eating in a much less inflammatory way. Is that crazy? Am I making that up or is that a real thing? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely real. I would definitely mm. say, you know, there's a lot of different factors that influence inflammation in the body. So, yeah. you know, it might not just be your diet, but like an analogy I use with like almost everyone I, I meet with is like, if you think of your body like a bucket or even like a cup, you know, <laughs> like your your immune system is built to withstand like, a certain amount of inflammation, like acute inflammation. But if you have chronic inflammation and you have a lot of inflammation, your cup or your bucket overflows and then presents itself as symptoms. So like you could be getting inflammation from your diet. You could be getting it from toxins or environmental allergens or stress or, you know, not getting enough sleep. That's a stressor on your body, you know, traumatic experiences, like all of those things affect our immune system. Um, and all those things have the potential to, you know, overwhelm the system. Mm. But like I always tell people, you know, not all of those things are within your control. Like, yeah, sometimes we can manage stress better and we can try to get better sleep and we can try to avoid, you know, chemicals and toxins that bother us. But, you know, several times a day, we're choosing what to put into our body through food. Mm. So if we know like what foods are better for us to eat, um, and what things are more inflammatory and to get out of your system, then that lowers that inflammatory bucket. And then you can see improvement in symptoms. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah. What a perfectly. good analogy. Yeah, it I does. It I mean, to summarize, it sort of matters what you eat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> makes a difference. You, you know, I'm almost afraid to even ask, but, you know, I mentioned gluten and dairy. There's so much said and thought about that, it seems today. Um you know, I deal with a lot of patients who have endometriosis, and there's a lot out there, kind of in the popular press more, about anti-inflammatory and so-called endometriosis diets. And most of them seem to have in common kind of the evils of dairy and gluten. You know, g give us some insight on, on gluten. What is it, and why does it seem to be such a bad thing? Yeah, so so gluten is a is a protein and various gluten grains, the most common being wheat. So oh, it's a it's a complicated topic. Um <laughs> there's there's actually a lot of research done by Dr. Alessio Fasano. He does a lot of research on the connection between gluten and the damage done to the gut lining, like gluten raising zonulin and zonulin like basically kind of opens the, you know, you're supposed to have tight junctions of cells in your intestinal wall lining. You know, it's supposed to allow certain things through like nutrients, but not, mm. you know, not be too permeable that toxins get in and that sort of thing. So there is research that shows that gluten damages the gut lining. Oh. I mean, I will say a lot of the patients that I work with when I do further testing for gluten sensitivity, most of them do have a gluten sensitivity, but I'll also say not everyone does. So, I mean, I can't necessarily say everyone in you know the whole world has to be on a gluten-free diet, but I definitely find like a lot of, a lot of patients do improve when going on a gluten-free diet. And just because I just know that maybe it's not just gluten, maybe it's the fact that like wheat is inflammatory a lot yeah. and dairy is a lot too. So maybe it's not just the gluten component. It could just be that, you know, wheat and dairy, you know, are causing an inflammatory response, but yeah. So, you know, you mentioned gluten sensitivity. What's the mm -hmm. difference between gluten sensitivity, a gluten allergy and celiac disease? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if gluten allergy is the real, I know there's gluten, like non-celiac gluten sensitivity is sure. one thing. Celiac disease is another thing. And then like wheat sensitivity and wheat allergy, that's, that's another thing. So sure. like anything that's like a true, true food allergy causes like an IgE mediated response. So like it's a true allergic reaction. Right. Um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is where someone doesn't necessarily have 
the auto autoimmune disease, celiac disease, but they still need to avoid gluten because it affects their body. So it affects, yeah. you know, their digestion. It might cause joint pain. For some people, it causes neurological issues. And so, yeah, and then there's celiac disease, which is the autoimmune disease to gluten, um, which I would say was definitely the most severe because, I mean, those types of patients have to avoid any type of cross-contamination. I mean, they can't even share the same toaster as someone in the same household because of the, you know, potential for cross-contamination. Sure. You know, with, with some of my own family members in a restaurant, if you say, is that gluten-free? In some restaurants, they'll say, are you sensitive or are you allergic? Mm-hmm. I think they want to know. Yeah. Really, they're trying to say, do you have actual celiac yeah. or do you just not feel good if you eat gluten? Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. And then I've noticed uh, when I was eating very low gluten that you feel better in a, in a, in a way. And then if you eat a, a high gluten-containing meal, it's a, it's a kind of a gross feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. It's that it's that yucky Thanksgiving, I really ate too much bloated kind of gross feeling. Um, yeah. is, that, is that everyone or is that just people who may have an underlying sensitivity? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't say probably everyone feels that way, but I mean, I, I would say it's pretty common. Um, and sometimes those symptoms go away, you know, within several hours as your food digests. And some people notice those symptoms lingering for a few days or even, I mean, it can take seven to 10 days for things to fully clear out of your system. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then what about dairy? So, you know, uh, if I hope there's no dairy farmers listening, but you know, listening and reading the sort of popular literature, it sounds like dairy is evil, (laughs) you know, is it? Is there? Is there a problem with dairy? Should everyone avoid dairy? Uh, you know, the the commercials would make us think if we don't drink milk, we're killing ourselves. Um, you know, shed some light on that uh, controversy for us. Mm, yeah, that's another like <laughs> big can of worms, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have the, we're gonna have the dairy lobby after you. Yeah. I grew up drinking like a glass of milk with every meal. Like yeah, we I all did. Loved, yeah, we all, yeah. I loved milk. And again, I just, I feel like it's very personalized. Dairy was a big trigger for for my personal skin issues. So I don't do dairy. My daughter has a dairy allergy. She actually gets a rash when she consumes dairy. I feel like it's like one of those things that, I mean, some people can eat dairy fine. It's probably the people that, you know, have a healthier gut and don't have the genetics that that I do maybe um but and it's complicated too just because again it's similar to like the gluten wheat thing I was talking about like there's a lot of different types of reactions you can have to dairy too like some people just have a lactose intolerance some people have a true dairy allergy where they get Mm. hives or rashes or you know some people get anaphylaxis from certain foods they're allergic to and you know some people have you know like on the MRT test I use, they're truly inflammatory to dairy. So maybe they can have, maybe they can have small amounts of it eventually and be and that be enough to keep inflammation down in the body. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's a tricky one because I feel like it's, it is very personalized. I, I, so I'm another not word, one that just says, you know, you have to avoid all of this. It's yeah. based on the person. So essentially, I mean, I'm hearing you say, Dairy is fine if it doesn't bother you, but if it bothers you, it's not fine. I think uh, so. Probably yeah. some people, but I think where I probably struggle and talking to patients, and it's usually around weight management, is because of the successful advertising campaign. There is kind of this American feeling that if you if your children don't drink milk, they're somehow nutritionally deprived. That mm. you know what's in milk? Well, there's some calcium. There's there's some fat. There's some protein. Right, they could get all of those things from some other food source. It doesn't yeah. have to be milk, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, there there are a lot of nutritional benefits to milk, like you said. I mean, there's a good amount of protein, and as compared mm. to a lot of the dairy alternatives, a lot of them don't have as much protein in them. There's pea milk, ripple pea protein milk that has about the same amount, but 
But yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's a tricky one because you really have to base it on the person and what their goals are. I mean, dairy, there's plenty of other ways to get calcium and vitamin D in the diet if if someone can't do dairy for whatever reason. But I would definitely say for most of the patients I work with, most of them do better being off of gluten and dairy. So. Oh, interesting. So, so we did a little myth busting on gluten and on dairy. <laughs> you know, bigger topic, equally controversy, controversial. What about meat? Is is meat unhealthy for us? Should should we be eating a meat free diet, or are we cheating ourselves, or are we doing something wrong if we don't eat meat? What, what's your what's your <laughs> feeling there? Oh boy, you're giving me these questions <laughs> that you're. <laughs> I don't like to take sides, okay? Yeah, yeah. I I am a pro meat eater. I think it's uh, a great way to get, you know, a good amount of iron, B12, you know, protein in general. Sure. Um, it's not impossible to get adequate nutrients not eating meat. And I fully support people that don't want to eat meat for whatever reason. But I mean, I think it's perfectly, you know, a perfectly acceptable part of a diet. It's, it's all really like, as I feel like as, you know, most dietitians try to have like all things in moderation in mind, unless it's something that's bothering you. So yeah, yeah, I mean, having a three ounce to six ounce serving of protein two or three times a day. I mean, that's like a very rough estimate, but I mean, I think meat can definitely be part of a healthy diet and you can have a healthy diet if you don't desire to eat meat. Yeah. That's interesting. The way you said that I've heard other people say the difference between could and should, you know, could you be very healthy uh, not eating meat versus should you not eat meat? Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you're saying you could be very healthy either way, just depending yeah. on your preferences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely prefer to try to get meat that's, you know, raised in, in a more ethical way. Like, you know, yeah. there's a lot of local farms that have like grass fed beef and, mm-hmm. you know, free range poultry and that sort of thing, rather than, you know, a lot of people have concerns about animals being raised in small cages. And, you know, sure. I totally understand that. So, yeah, I, I definitely encourage people to try to get, you know, better sources of meat when they can. And even if mm-hmm. they don't get it from a local farmer, I mean, most grocery stores have you know, grass-fed meat and those types of things available. So, Sure. You know, it's interesting. Do you think that we eat a lot differently now than our ancestors a few generations ago? And and how, What if, if so, what would those differences be? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends, like, how far you go back. I mean, <laughs> so when was it? Like, maybe in the... 50s when things started to get more like convenience-based and processed, but like definitely nowadays, I mean, you know, people are just on the go so much and don't have, you know, a lot of families have both parents working full-time and they don't have as much time to spend, you know, cooking things from, from scratch. There's, there's fast ways to do it. You just have to figure those things out. But, you know, I feel like a lot of people do do more like fast food and convenience food. So I feel like, like the biggest changes are, you know, people used to eat a lot more like things that were, you know, locally raised, homegrown, you know, cooked from scratch. So less, you know, less chemicals and additives added to the food as compared to now, like there's a lot more things with, you know, like added high fructose corn syrup, for example, like like so many things have just like all this extra added sweeteners to make it taste better. But is it really necessary? No. Um, So I think those are probably the biggest changes like people are doing in general, more processed food that has a lot more preservatives and chemicals in them. So, mm. yeah, it is easy. It's easy and inexpensive to eat poorly. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. harder and more expensive to eat well, isn't it? It is. But I try to remind people that it's like your health insurance. Like that's what I that's what I tell myself too. When I'm spending <laughs> money on groceries, it's like, I would rather pay more money to eat healthy now 
so I don't have to spend more money down the road on medications and doctor's visits. Mm. And I, I mean, I've seen that with patients that I've worked with, like, you know, being on a lot of medications and, you know, a lot of them have been able to wean down or off of certain medications. And, you know, if you think about it in the long run, you can save money by eating healthier. So that's, yeah. that's what you have to remember. <laughs> Yeah, I bet most of our listeners are thinking what I was thinking. Wow, would it be fun to go grocery shopping with Courtney? You know, uh, what what's a trip to the grocery store look like for you, someone that knows everything about food uh, and is trying to eat really healthy? What's your basket look like after, you know, a big trip to the grocery store? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I get a, I get a lot of things from the produce department uh, and- uh. I myself just get, not everyone would like this, but I just get a bunch of random things <laughs> and then I just throw, I don't really do meal planning. <laughs> I just like get a bunch of fruits and vegetables. I get a bunch of proteins. I get some side dishes. Like, I don't mm. know, we do a lot of like sweet potatoes and rice and things like that. Mm. And then I throw them together throughout the week. So yeah, I fill up a lot on more whole real foods and do I do throw in some special snack items and stuff too. Yeah. So it sounds like you might subscribe to that that grocery shopping theory of stay on the outside. Uh, don't go in the inner aisles, stay on the outside aisles. For the most part. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do get sucked into certain things. But yeah, you know, yeah. 90% of my, my grocery trip is, yeah, the whole foods as much as possible. So um, changing gears a little bit. So if a listener is listening and they're thinking, you know, I have a problem, I'll bet, I'll bet she's got an answer to my problem. What's a typical evaluation and treatment plan from someone like you look like? Yeah, so typically um, I have them do like a one-page health history form like before our consultation and a one-page symptom survey, which I use as a monitoring tool. So I, I like to have those ahead of time just so I can kind of have a little bit of information um, mm -hmm. to go into the conversation. But we spend a good amount of time talking about like their health history, like, you know, going way back to even childhood, if they had issues back then, talk about family history, because a lot of things I see tend to run in families, you know, any important lab work that they have available, or, you know, just kind of telling me what's been abnormal. Um, we go into more detail on what their typical diet's like, and then, you know, what changes maybe they've made that they have or haven't seen changes within their body after making those dietary changes you know, even likes and dislikes, where they shop at, who does the cooking shopping, just so I can know kind of everything that's going on. So I can kind of better, better assist them once we wrap up. But I also like to get a little bit of information on like physical activity and sleep and stress too, just to kind of get a big picture of everything. Um, so yeah, once I kind of do go over all of that, then I kind of dive into, well, this is, you know, this is my typical approach with patients and, you know, help them decide, you know, if, are they someone that does better with bigger, more drastic changes or smaller, more gradual steps and, mm. you know, kind of based on everything we talk about and taking that into account, kind of guide them on, on the next steps from there. So a lot of the patients I work with, I would say, you know, most of them besides like the gestational diabetics, dive into like the MRT test because most of the patients just want, you know, like a more structured plan. They've been dealing with issues for quite some time and just want answers. So that's probably my preferred starting point just because it gets us some answers, you know, as soon as we get the test results back and then it, it just helps me guide a more personalized plan for them using that yeah. test report. I mean, I don't make it mandatory and I want to make sure it's right for the person um, that does it, but that's kind of where we typically go with most of the appointments I hold. Now, do you, do you think that approach that you just described, is that a common approach for a nutritionist or is that unique with, you know, sort of your approach? As far as like diving into health history and background and all of that, I would definitely say it's pretty typical of someone like 
that has a private practice. Like, I mean, I block off at least an hour and a half just to make sure I have plenty of time to talk through everything in detail. Whereas if I was say an inpatient dietitian at a hospital, mm. I only, might only have 10 minutes with the patient. I might just cover mm. the very basics. Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, I would say that that might be pretty typical of like a private practice dietitian. Not all dietitians use the MRT test and some of more that functional testing that we talked about earlier. But yeah, I would say it's overall pretty typical. Well, let's let's quit with all these easy questions, and let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you the really tough one. Oh goodness! What's the secret to weight loss? Everybody that that listens to this and heard that there was going to be a nutritionist on is thinking, "I'm going to tune in because she is going to give me the magic bullet oh that's going to solve weight loss." So, you know, really talk talk to listeners about weight loss. What's what's the secret? What are the most common mistakes that you see people trying to lose weight? What are they, what are they most guilty of? Oh goodness. Take it away. (laughs) So I've already said that it's very personalized, right? Like you hear me say this a lot. It's hard for me to just say like one thing works for everyone. So, Oh, I would say that going back to inflammation, I I do find inflammation plays a huge role. I mean, it's not, it's not the only role, but I mean, I do know, you know, when people are eating things that are inflammatory to their body, you know, a lot of times it is more of the processed food that has, you know, some of these different things, chemicals, soy, wheat, you know, all those things in them. And if they're inflammatory to them, inflammation actually causes the the release of cortisol, which is not only a stress hormone, but it's like a fat storage hormone Mm. as well. So I have worked with a lot of patients that have had difficulty losing weight. So weight loss resistance. And then when we get inflammation down in their body, it's easier for them to lose weight or they've, you know, seen weight loss happen that they haven't seen happen (laughs) with restricting calories. Um. Um, So, I mean, that's, I, I would say that's definitely one big piece that a lot of people don't know the connection between, you know, other things I find sometimes people restrict too much or eat a lot of like processed food just as a way to, you know, get calories down, you know, doing hundred calorie snacks here and there and mm-hmm. 200 calorie drink and want to lose weight. And, you know, maybe they lose a little bit of weight, but again, it's like having that balance. Like you can't restrict yourself too much that over time, you know, your metabolism slows down. It's about having, I would say balance is a big thing that I talk to people about having a balance between like proteins and vegetables and healthy fats. Um, it's not having the perfect diet, but the, the more you can incorporate more of those real whole foods and reduce processed food, you know, it definitely helps. Um you know, thyroid plays a big role too. So, I mean, I know sometimes people don't have never had their thyroid level checked or their vitamin Mm -hmm. D level checked. So some of those imbalances can cause difficulties losing weight as well. Um, So I see different things happen. Some people restrict too much. Mm -hmm. Um, Or restrict the wrong things maybe. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think of some different examples. I wouldn't say there's just a magic bullet, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we were all hoping for was the magic bullet. You know, so what do you think about popular dieting trends? So whether it's uh, a low carb diet or uh, a carb diet so low that it's ketogenic and, um, you know, you certainly, you, you you can't go into social media without seeing keto things everywhere. Well, yeah. What's your what's your take on, on those popular kind of weight loss trends? Yeah, I mean... I know people have have lost weight doing, for example, the keto diet and have felt better doing the keto diet. But I always go back to, is it sustainable long term? Because like, that's what I see a lot when people do, you know, whatever fad diet it is, you know, if once they go off of it, a lot of times they go back to their old habits and then regain the weight and oftentimes more. So like you probably heard the term like yo-yo diet. A lot of times that's what happens. And then the keto diet also long-term, it can be problematic with like nutrient deficiencies too. If they're only eating say meats and fats and not enough 
leafy green vegetables or even some working some fruits in there, you know, there's definitely some, you know, deficiencies where people mm. can get, you know, not enough vitamin C or not enough B vitamins for energy metabolism. So, I mean, short term, it, it might help to, to jumpstart weight loss, but I just I don't know that it's feasible long term. Would mm. you agree? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, that sort of gets into more of the, the psychology than the nutrition, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, because whatever you do, if you can't do it forever, it, it's not going to work. If you define working by long-term success, um, mm -hmm. that seems problematic. So, yeah, um, I mean, life's lifestyle changes are, are huge. I mean, there's definitely a psychological aspect to losing weight and keeping it off. And I, I would probably say that's probably the, the hardest part working in nutrition is actually, you know, dealing with, you know, people may have trauma behind body image and, and mm. weight loss and food. And some people use food to deal with emotions. And yeah. I mean, it's actually not my favorite thing, favorite thing to work with. And I wouldn't say that's my specialty area. I try yeah. to give advice, but a lot of times I like to have someone like working in conjunction with a therapist to dive into some of that stuff yeah. a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I've heard a lot of experts say, you know, the, the challenge with weight loss is ab above the shoulders, not below the shoulders. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's the mental aspect of it. Uh, emotional-based eating and stress-based eating. And, um, you know, certainly in my line of work, sometimes sleep deprivation is a reality. Yeah. And I've really seen in my own life that sort of stress-based cortisol-driven hunger. Mm -hmm. uh, and sleep deprivation or any big stress will generally make us want to eat. And so if you're, yeah. if you're leading a pretty stressed lifestyle, you may want to eat a lot and that's going to be rough for weight loss. Yeah, that's yeah. true too. That brought up a good point. Um, you know, with people, when you asked about how to lose weight, that's another thing I see happen, even with, you know, you could probably hear a lot of people talking about um, intermittent fasting too. And sure. like when you restrict your eating window down to small, and don't get in enough calories throughout the day. That's another thing I see happen is like, you know, people don't take in enough calories. Their their body's almost trying to play catch up and then they'll have cravings and that'll lead to binge eating. <laughs> and it's like a bad cycle. Or if they're not sleeping well, again, your your body kind of naturally craves carbs as the quickest source of energy. Uh. So if you're not getting good sleep, it kind of, yeah, is a kind of a bad cycle to get into. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true that. Absolutely. Well, you know, as, as we sort of wind down, what are, you know, some good resources that you would direct listeners to for kind of all things nutrition or nutritional questions? I do really like, I mentioned earlier, Dr. Alessio Fasano, his research with the, the whole gut stuff, gut and mm. gluten. So if people want to dive into that more, I mean, they can look up Dr. Fasano, and there's all kinds of information and webinars and podcasts and stuff that come up. Um, I had a few notes here because I was going to share some websites too. So like just for meal ideas and re recipes, um, the realfooddietitians.com, they have a lot of good just like, you know, whole foods based meal ideas yeah. and stuff like that. Um, Lily Nichols, RDN, um, she has a website and um, a book called Real Food for Pregnancy. So that's a really good yeah. one that I like for pregnant patients. Um, yeah, the uh, like Instagram, a lot of people like that. So there's the women's dietitian on there. She has a lot of good ideas for like PCOS and fertility related things. Um, so those are probably some of yeah. my favorite resources. Just oh, excellent. Different things there. Well, uh you know, in the seconds that we have left, what's what's the most important thing you want to leave listeners with? If you could leave them with one thing about food and nutrition, uh, what's that bit of advice that you'd give? Oh, well, I would probably say listen to your body. That's mm. a big one. And, you know, what works for one person doesn't always work for another person. So, um, you know, you can always try, you can try these different diets out there and see if they they help. But, you know, just going back to real whole foods, listening to your body as far as, you know, how do you feel after you ate, you know, maybe keeping some notes, 
you know, what you ate, you didn't feel well. So just trying to recognize what your body's trying to tell you. Cause a lot of times people can start to put together, you know, I feel really good when I eat this and I don't want to eat that. So trying to really um, think of yourself as an individual and don't, don't jump on every new diet out there and expect it to, <laughs> to be the miracle cure, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that sounds like good advice. And, and lastly, Courtney, how do listeners contact you if they're interested uh, in seeing you? Yeah, pr- probably the best way um, would be just going to my website first. It's just my last name, Reinhold.com. Um, and then they can learn more about my practice there. And if they want to contact me through the website, they can, or the phone number to the office is on there as well. So that would be a, a good way to do it. Excellent. Yep. Well, thank you for all of this food for thought, pun intended. I uh, really appreciate you spending time with us. And uh, I, we've got to have you back again to talk about more food and nutrition uh, knowledge. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Courtney, thank you. Yep. Bye. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this bit of time with Courtney Reinhold, a food and nutrition expert. I know I have. Uh, I hope you've learned a few things about food. Again, uh, I know that I have. I think I liked uh, the most this idea that Courtney presented so beautifully of balance. And whatever food method or dietary method you use, it's got to be balanced because if it isn't, you'll grow tired of it and probably fail. I think that's particularly true when it comes to weight loss, something that so many of us uh, struggle with. And this other idea of the foods that we're putting in our bodies can actually be toxic to us and maybe not toxic to the person next to us. And that it's not a one size fits all. So whether that's gluten-free or dairy-free or in, in Courtney's case, lettuce-free, we need to understand which foods are making us feel well and which foods are making us feel poorly. And then I think lastly, I, I really love the idea that she often presents of you know whole foods, minimizing the amount of processed foods that we eat that's usually paper, plastic, or a can. Um, it's going to be processed with chemicals and preservatives and additives uh, by necessity. But if we could minimize those foods and maximize the more whole foods and natural-based food products, the better for most of us in, in most circumstances. So thanks again for joining me here on All Things Women's Health. I hope you'll plan on joining us regularly. We'll try to put these episodes out as often as we can on topics that really matter. So if it affects women and their health, it's on our agenda for All Things Women's Health. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, your host, and I look forward to seeing you next time on All Things Women's Health. 